Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to The Rest is History. Uh, we are doing the 12 days of Christmas, or indeed the 13 days of Christmas, and we have finally reached the 5th of January. It's the penultimate day, isn't it? Yes, the penultimate day, and an absolute red-letter day in the Rest is History's calendar, in the Rest is History's seasonal year, because Tom Holland, happy birthday. It is thank the you big very, day, isn't it? Thank you very much, Dominic. Um, oh, what a lovely moment this is. It is. And you know how modest I am that I haven't chosen my birthday as one of the two historical events that we're talking about today. Are you going to be doing anything exciting for your birthday, Tom? I don't know, because uh, what, when are we recording this? It's the... Uh, yeah, we're recording it two weeks earlier. <laughs> the, the 23rd of December. <laughs> yeah. So I have no idea what we're going to be doing. Probably staying in under a lockdown or something. You, I should, guess. Concoct, you should have concocted some <laughs> elaborate story. Yeah, we're going skiing. <laughs> I've never skied. No, I've never been skiing, actually. Never will now, I imagine. Never, no. Yeah. Um, that's a depressing oh. note on which to start, isn't it? Um, <laughs> or maybe it isn't. I mean, maybe... Have you can't do anything. Any, well, I've never had any desire to go skiing, ever. Yeah. It if you'd horrible. wanted to have gone skiing... I know I'd be terrible gone at it. I know, I know. Anyway, so, so yeah, I'll be celebrating my birthday by not going skiing and probably staying in and shivering. Oh, because oh. probably by then there'll be power cuts, won't there? Power cuts? What are you on about? Well, Russia will have invaded Ukraine. All the gas will be cut off. Yes, I'm very worried about that, actually. Uh, so who knows what will have happened? Okay, well, let's cheer everybody up by talking you know, about But, but some... you know what, Dominic? Yeah. If that hasn't happened, if yeah. maybe by the 5th January, the day today, yeah. <laughs> the, the Omicron wave will have peaked and passed. Uh, yeah. There won't have been any power cuts. There won't have been a war. Uh, everything will be great. And people listening to this will have a real spring in their step. Because they they'll see the they'll, path they'll, that they'll be history could have taken. Things might have been. Yeah, but imagine if if it's even worse. <laughs> People listen to this in the bombed out ruins of London. <laughs> yeah, terrible. I feel this terrible ironic podcast. Yes. People laughing as, and yeah, as uh, the Omega variant sweeps the world. Oh my word, anyway. Tom! Don't do this. Don't no. do it. Let's Any, talk anyway. about something else. Let's talk. Let's let's go back a thousand years and talk about something from from the eleventh century. Yes, and cheer ourselves up with the thought that actually things could be a lot worse because my date is 5th January 1066. And that is the day on which Edward the Confessor dies. Uh, and of course, the death of Edward the Confessor, the starting gun on uh, the most tumultuous year, perhaps, in British history. Yeah. Uh, the year that sees um, uh, the Battle of Hastings, the Norman Conquest, uh, and on Christmas Day, 1066, William the Conqueror crowned in the great abbey at Westminster that Edward the Confessor had uh, been building throughout his life, um, and which had been dedicated on the 28th of January, 1065. So right. um, a week or so before Edward's death. Uh, and, and that's really the last kind of great event of, of his reign. And from that point on, he basically takes to bed uh, he slips in and out of consciousness. He kind of mutters gibberish occasionally. And the question that hangs over his sickbed, Westminster, England, Northern Europe, is who is going to succeed him as king because he is childless. He, he has totally failed to provide an heir. No heir. Yeah. yeah. And he has also, basically, he's been playing off 
a pair of candidates. Yeah. Harold Godwinson, who is the greatest earl in the realm, and William the Duke of Normandy, and both of them feel that they have a, a, a claim on the throne. There is, of course, it's actually not up to Edward. It's up to the Witan. Because it's kind of an elective monarchy, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of an elective monarchy. But over the, the previous century or so, um, the, the principle has basically been established that um, it, it should be a kind of hereditary monarchy. So the hereditary principle should kick in. But what has complicated that is the fact that, um, you know, as Edward well knows, because his father, Ethelred the Unready, had been kicked out and replaced by uh, the Danish kings. So Svein Forkbeard, Knut, Hathcanut, yeah. uh, Harold Harefoot. Um, so there is this kind of idea that, um, you know, the hereditary principle is kind of moderated by violence, rapacity and opportunism. <laughs> And yeah. that is ba- basically where Harold comes in, because there is there is a, an atheling, uh, someone who is, you know, the, the, the word for someone who is qualified to be a king in the form of Edgar. Yeah. Who is. Um, so there's a there's, there's a kind of a, a, a branch of Ethelred's family that have fled to um, Edmund Ironside's family who who, who lose who um, had fought Canuck to, to a score draw decades earlier. Uh, and Ed- Edmund Ironside then dies and Canuck takes over the whole of England. Um, and his family line have been in Hungary. Uh, and Edgar has come back. He doesn't really, you know, not a native English speaker, uh, doesn't have the kind of the network of connections that um, a-, a king properly needs. And so he, and he's 13 years old. <laughs> so, so that's no good. Yeah. So, so it good. isn't really yeah. any good. So Edward the Confessor, Tom, he's the seventh son of Ethelred the Unready. We didn't feature him in the World Cup of English Kings. Um, he no. wasn't a contender. Um, is that so? First of all, he spent lots of his life. He's half Norman, isn't he? His mother is yeah. Emma of Normandy. Yeah, and so when when Ethelred um, goes to uh, flees to Normandy, Edward had gone with him, and so had been spent a lot of time in the Norman court. So is he kind of more? Would you say more Norman than than English? Do you think? Yes, uh, he's. Yes, uh, well, he's very con- he's very conscious of the fact that he is um, he's of the line of the Kurdic Ingas, so the line of Kurdic going back through um, Alfred yeah. all the way to Kurdic, the legendary founder of the West Saxon dynasty, and that gives you know that's a, a dare I say a sacral quality to, to his bloodline. <laughs> the listeners uh, would expect nothing less. Um, but yes, but I think culturally he's he's. He's as much Norman as he is uh, Anglo-Saxon. Um, what about the, the issue with him and the Godwins? So Godwin is the big sort of magnate, isn't he? Uh, are, they, are they? Does he kind of is he enthralled to them? That that family? Aaron well, he Godwinson's? hates them. He hates them. Oh right, okay. Um, so so the Godwins are the kind of the big cheeses. Yeah, Godwin is the Earl of Wessex. Harold Godwin's son succeeds to that. Yeah, um, and. The Godwins, you know, have, have, have become successful as uh, um, Knut's men. Uh, okay, right. Uh, they're part Danish themselves. Yeah. Um, so Godwin has married a Danish wife. Um, and they basically are the kind of the archetype of the overmighty subject. Yeah. And Edward, although he has this royal line, bloodline, he is also, you know, as we said, a kind of an outsider. Yeah. Uh, and so there's an incredible tension. Um, 
Godwin feels that basically he, you know, he, he's the big man. He has the, um, the, the patronage networks. He should really be running the kingdom. Edward feels that he should. And there's this, you know, they kind of kick each, uh, Godwin, um, kind of kicks sand in Edward's face. Edward gets back. Godwin's going to exile. Godwin's come back. They kick sand in Edward's face. <laughs> right. It's, and basically there's a kind of uneasy truce. And Edward ends up marrying Godwin's daughter, Edith. So Harold's sister. Yeah. And the question of why they never have any children. I mean, one of the answers may be that Edward refuses to allow the grandson of a Godwin to sit on the English throne. I mean, it may be that, you know, that's one of the theories for it. Okay. He just can't bear to go to bed with her. Um, we, we don't know. I mean, there's, there's clearly <laughs> a lot going on there that yeah. uh, we have no way of knowing. So would you give Edward the Confessor low marks for kingship based on the fact Terrible. Of, of what happens afterwards? Yes. Yeah, because because the disaster of the conquest is entirely down to Edward, and it's he not could just have, bad luck could, that, that 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 happens. And therefore, no, because he plays he plays he plays Harold and 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 William against one another, and yeah. so both of them can say, "Well, Edward, you know." So, so what happens when when Edward dies? So with him, and you can see this on the on the bare tapestry, um, but it's also reported in a. Um, a life of Edward that is kind of pretty much contemporaneous that as when he dies, he has Edith, so his wife, yeah. uh, Harold, um, uh, Robert, who's the steward of the, of the, of the palace and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's a, a kind of um, a bit of a rogue called Stigand. And this, this account kind of blurs the question of, of, of who it is that Edward on his deathbed nominates. William yeah. will claim that it was, it was William. And that he'd already nominated him, Harold. <laughs> Harold obviously says it was me. But what the, what this what this account says is that Edward entrusts the kingdom to Harold rather than granting it. So yeah. entrusting could be could imply a kind of regency for Edgar the Atheling. I mean, so, so it's all up for granted. But what we know is that um, Harold is crowned the, the following day, probably in Westminster Abbey, and that's incredibly quick. And what that also implies is that um, the Witan must have all been suborned by Harold to back him yeah. before Edward dies. And the reason they can do that is that all the, the great earls and lords have, have gathered in London, in Westminster, for the consecration of the, uh, of the Abbey. And the two key figures who gets squared are Edwin, who is the Earl of, of Mercia, and Morker, who's the Earl of Northumbria, who are a pair of brothers. Um, and uh, Morcar marries and again another Edith. It's all incredibly confusing. But but Harold Harold marries um, the sister of Edwin and Morcar, who is called Edith. Is that Edith Swanneck? No, that's a different Edith. Oh God, too many. Ediths. So there are th- there are three Ediths. So there's the Edith who is Harold's sister, who's yeah. who's been married to Edward the Confessor. There's Edith Swanneck, who is the great beauty, who is Harold's mistress. Yeah. And then there's Edith, who is the sister of Edwin and Morka, who marries Harold, obviously as a kind of prepackaged deal yeah. to get them to, to back him as king. And so wow. he's crowned on the same day as Edward's funeral. So it's all, it's, there's a lot of kind of indecent hurry going on. Who knew that this podcast would bring so many Ediths? <laughs> the name of our cat. Um, Bless her. Yeah, my, uh, my, my paternal grandmother was called Edith. It's an um, old-fashioned name, isn't it? It's a great um, name. It's a really it's a great, great name. name. Yeah, it's the kind of name I think that's kind of coming back into vogue. But uh, it's spelt spelt in a kind of very groovy way. Is in it old English? Yeah, it's kind of E A D 
YG, maybe E. That, that's just a hassle for E-A-D. That's a hassle. G-Y-T-H. Giving you a name to bureaucrats, isn't it? I mean, so much. <laughs> well, it's, like, it's like kind of Irish people have this hassle, don't they? Yes. I had the great, um, lots of discussions Siobhan. about this with my wife. I said, if they can't, yes. if somebody's saying, sorry, how do you spell that? It's no good. That's just going to annoy, annoy the, the child. Anyway, we're getting off to off piste. The death of Edward the Confessor. So quite a dark day in English history, Tom. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, and after the break, I should be doing a very dark day in French history. We promised you more Gallicisms yesterday, and I have them. Because we should be talking about the Dreyfus case. Yeah, okay. That's a very dark day. Yeah. Um, right. But but obviously, there's a lot of light because it is my birthday. So Yes. So it's yeah. light and shade. All light right. And shade. See you after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to this uh, this wonderful day. It's my birthday, 5th of January, um, the penultimate uh, of the 12, 13 days of Christmas, however you like to calculate them. Um, and in the uh, the first half, we did the death of Edward the Confessor in 1066. Uh, and Dominic, your choice now. Well, we did before it. has a Dreyfusard flavour. Yeah, it's a, it's a Dreyfusard-themed uh, day. But before we come to that, since it is your birthday, Tom, it occurs to me that if the listeners wish to buy you a present. <laughs> they oh, could, the very idea. They could, they should go to restishistorypod.com and treat themselves to restishistory club membership. Yes. That's what you'd want, isn't it, Tom? That is what I'd want. Of course yes. it is. What a wonderful, yes. And if you really love Tom Holland, you could get an Athelstan membership. Because I know, Tom, nothing would mean more to you than that, would it? Oh, Dominic, I don't want to say that. <laughs> well, that's because you want presents on top of it. No, I just, I, 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 just to be the podcast host of people's hearts. That's all I want. <laughs> Nothing more. So, 
the 5th of January 1895, we are in the Morlon Court of the Military School in Paris. So um, cadets and so on are assembling. Uh, there are 5,000 men in the sort of courtyard of the École Militaire. The drums are rolling. They're all lined up in their in their finery and their uniforms, and uh, out of the building come four artillery officers and a fifth man. That fifth man is Captain Alfred Dreyfus, who is an artillery officer uh, born in Alsace and Jewish, and, right? And Jewish. And that's the key. And he has been uh, accused, charged, of, and convicted of treason, of espionage, of passing secrets to the Germans of all people, the very people who'd humiliated France in the Franco-Prussian War. And uh, Dreyfus stands there in front of all these thousands of men. Uh, another officer reads out the judgment, and then an adjutant steps up to Dreyfus, and he tears off from Dreyfus's uniform the badges, the, um, the stripes. He tears off his cuffs. Um, his buttons, the sleeves of his jacket, and Dreyfus is standing there, uh, sort of rigid. You know, his, yeah, rigid, utterly rigid. You know, like sort of Inspector Clouseau being decorated at the end of one of the Pink Panther films by the French president. If, for those of you who are Clouseau aficionados, he's standing there. He has a tremendous sense of dignity, Dreyfus, while all this is happening to him. Dreyfus, the traitor, or so it seems. And um, the crowning moment of this is that this officer takes Dreyfus's sword and he snaps the sword in two over his knee. And at that point, that's the point to which Dreyfus physically staggers. He sort of recoils and stumbles and then steadies himself and raises his arms. And he shouts, innocent, innocent, vive la France, vive l'armée. You have degraded an innocent man, but I swear that I am innocent. And, you know, the 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 watching men uh no one moves no one says anything and then the the men turn and uh they march off with Dreyfus among them Dreyfus is taken off to prison uh initially he's taken to the a prison on the Ile de Ré sort of yeah near, wonderful place yeah now the sort of French sort of, yes, sort of French camping <laughs> yeah yes. yeah um well, Brittany, we said in the previous podcast, was the French Cornwall, but this is the sort of uh, the, the holiday destination of choice for the sort of it's French liberal middle classes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and he's held in the Ile de Ré for a month. So then he's put on a ship, and for 15 days they sail west, and they arrive at the um, Salvation Islands of French Guiana um, in South America, and there on uh, an island called Devil's Island. Which isn't, well, the, you know, I mean, if you're going on holiday... No, you, you wouldn't you go, go to Devil's a place Island. called Devil's Island. You wouldn't want to it go is the most notorious, probably the most notorious penal colony in the on world. the planet. Yeah. yeah, in the world. Um, the most horrendous sort of conditions. It is the place uh, from Papillon. Um, yeah. So you go there to get to catch fever and die. Yeah, you absolutely do. And there he is, apart from the guards, his guards, Dreyfus is the only inhabitant of the island. And he is put in a, a stone hut that is about 13 feet by 13 feet in size. And there he must stay, talking to no one. Rot. Trapped to rot. And you know what? Well, of course you know what. He was innocent. 
He was right. So the backstory to this, the Dreyfus affair is the most extraordinary political scandal in French history. Because it makes, it makes Brexit look like a storm in a keycap. It does. It, it had huge crowds. It but had that rioting. Is, I mean, in modern terms, that is the closest analogy, isn't it? I think that's what people have said, that the, the sense of an absolute division in the country. Yeah. People I suppose so, because it becomes... to speak to each other. It absolutely um, becomes what we, what people would call a culture war. So it becomes ideas about patriotism, identity, what is France, all this stuff. All of these things are kind of heaped up onto this one. Basically, it's a piece of paper in a waste paper basket is what it's all about. Yes. Yeah, so sorry, I interrupted. So the, the backstory to this. So the backstory is fascinating. So France has lost in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. And Germany has been created off the back of that. And the French feel terribly humiliated because they've also lost Alsace-Lorraine. Um, to the to the Germans, and a lot of people from Alsace play a part in the Dreyfus case story. There's lots of people in the army from Alsace, and there's this burning sense of kind of mutilation and humiliation that they want these these territories back. But they, you know, the Germans Germany is the powerhouse of Europe, so the chances of them getting them back are slim. And the French, there's a sort of sense in France in the 1890s and so on that there's a kind of a toxicity to politics. The political life is, is poisoned, really, by the humiliations of the century. And um, the French are very anxious uh, that the Germans are sp- have overtaken them technologically and that they're spying on them and stealing all their secrets. And French military intelligence basically starts spying on the German embassy in Paris. And they have a housekeeper called Madame Bastion, who is a um, – she's, she's working for the, for the French Secret Service – and she's basically spying on the Germans, and she finds a torn-up note in a waste paper basket, which becomes known as the Bordereau, which means I don't know what that means. Let's say a torn-up note. Anyway, she finds this Bordereau, and she and it's they 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 stitch it back together, and they find that it's basically a um, the details of a gun of a of a new sort of hydraulic-powered gun that the French have developed, and somebody has given this to the milit- French German military attaché, who's a man called Max von Schwarzkoppen. Basically, the sort of casting agency has supplied yes. the German, <laughs> German <laughs> officer's name. <laughs> um, and they look around to find out who it is. It must be somebody in artillery, blah, blah, blah. And basically, suspicion falls on Dreyfus for two reasons. Reason num- Well, three reasons, actually. Reason number one is that he's from Alsace. So, the peop- so there's this sort of... Alsace has this strange place in the French psyche at this point because obviously it's the it's the it's the territory they want to recapture, but also people from Alsace, some of them do feel German yeah. rather than French. So there is this sort of dubiousness about Dreyfus. Next, Dreyfus is a very chilly character. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have lots of friends. He's not a man to go to the pub with. He's well, he's like the stereotype of a, of a British officer, kind of a little bit, yeah, chilly. A stiff up a lip. Is he sort of Douglas Jardine? To, he's to Douglas Jardine. Yes, he's Douglas Jardine. Yes. Yeah. And so he, that all that thing you were describing about his his refusal to show any emotion when yeah. his unspeakable humiliation, public humiliation, is being visited. Oh, a public humiliation, which is which is literally called a degradation. A degradation. I mean, that's this. That's its official title. And he, you know, he, yeah, he draws on the inner ice. He does. And then Robert Harris has an absolutely wonderful novel about the Dreyfus. Yeah, that's great. Um, what's it called? An officer and a spy? Is it? I think something. And like it's that. an ama- It's amazing because you you know exactly what's going to happen, and you keep turning the pages to find out what's going to happen. Yeah, agreed. I think it's his, for me. It's actually his best novel. 
Um, and in that, one of the, one of the really interesting things in that is it would be a much more Hollywood story if Dreyfus was just kind of terribly sentimental. Tom Hanks. Yeah, if he was Tom <laughs> Hanks. But he's absolutely not. He's played by a sort of, he'd be played by some sort of, you know, British character actor who might otherwise be playing Neville Chamberlain or something. Yes. Isn't he? Jeremy and, Irons. Yeah. And, uh, because he's so unlovable, that kind of gives the, uh, an, an extra layer of irony, I suppose, to the story. But of course, the big thing about Dreyfus is that he is Jewish and anti-Semitism is really, really rampant in France in the 1890s and 1900s. It's a sort of, I don't know, it's a reaction against modernity. It's a search for scapegoats after defeat in war. Um, and there's this, all this sort of, there's this kind of Catholic conservative politics kind of bubbling away. And, um, Dreyfus makes the perfect person. And once the military have seized on Dreyfus and they've said it's him, they refuse to accept, a lot of the officers refuse to accept any questioning or, or, or to entertain any doubts at all. Well, Even also, as mean, the doubts it, start it worse to, than that? I mean, they, they, they start him. forging. Yeah, they start forging evidence. Um, that's exactly right. And that's so, what makes it so toxic is, is that actually it, it kind of ends up where people have to decide either Dreyfus is guilty or the army. Yeah or the army have been lying to you, because once the army start forging evidence, and I think they do it at first, the honour of the army is at stake, Dreyfus must be proved to be guilty. Um, mm. And once they've started doing that, because quite quickly, within a few years, suspicion falls on another man called Esterhazy, who is in fact the guilty That's party. Yeah. Um, and, and then it starts to get taken up by kind of liberal or left-wing writers. Emile Zola. Most, most famously, Emile Zola, who writes the front-page story, Jacques um, in which he basically says the entire which he, French Which he writes when he's in exile, doesn't he? Yes, he has to go into exile um, because because you see the Dreyfus case becomes so incendiary that to take a side on it means absolute. I mean, it's far greater than Brexit, far more incendiary than Brexit. Um, it means you absolutely identify yourself politically in the eyes of your contemporaries, and it means that half the country will hate you because either you are on the side of Dreyfus and of sort of justice, or you're on the side of the army and the honour of France and the nation and all this sort of stuff. It's very so, good in Proust. I've oh, never read sure. Proust. Oh, it's so uh, good. It's really it looks, brilliant. It looks terribly long. It I mean, is, it is very I long. mean, you know, it's indisputably very long, but it's as a portrait of um, French society in this period, it's kind of incomparable. Right. And, and a Proust and, obviously and, would, and, be and, a, would be a Dreyfus partisan, well, wouldn't he? Well, because he's Jewish, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but people's attitudes to Dreyfus is kind of very useful um so sure, signifier as to where yes. they stand on a whole host of other issues so to cut a long story short i think we should definitely do a whole podcast on the dreyfus case because it's such a fascinating story but um you, those of you who don't know how it ends probably do want to know how it ends so dreyfus is eventually pardoned um he's not exonerated at first he's just he's basically found guilty again <laughs> completely unfairly and but the the french president gives him a pardon uh, which Dreyfus accepts very reluctantly because, of course, accepting a pardon carries the imputation of guilt, uh, which he and he knows he wasn't guilty, but he accepts it. He's persuaded to accept it. He's not exonerated until 1906. And then he actually serves in the French army in World War One, and even then, you know, nobody really likes him. <laughs> even the people who've supported him say, "God, what he's such a chilly kind of unlovable character." But to who who has become this great martyr? Um, but the interesting thing now is that uh, the French kind of um, ultra-right-wing polemicist, demagogue, and kind of presidential Eric candidate, Zemmour, Eric Zemmour, who is himself Jewish, has, re has brought the Dreyfus case back up again and says, 
He looks. He thinks Dreyfus was possibly guilty. I think that's is, exactly what France needs at this at the moment is to reopen the to reopen the Dreyfus case. Well, it would make um, Britain's arguments about Brexit look, yeah. you know, restrained and dignified by comparison, wouldn't it? Yes, Eric Zemmour. I mean, he's he has. Um, so he also thinks that Marshal Petain was unfairly treated, and he thinks that um, uh, Dreyfus was guilty. Shocking. I mean, these these seem unnecessary plasters yeah. to rip be ripping off at the moment. This, these are, this is this not where if you're just a controversialist, this is just where you end up being led. You just end up. We must not do that, Tom. No, we must. We must stay on the straight and narrow guard. and yes. avoid taking ludicrous positions, unnecessary polemical. Yeah, we would never do that, would we? We'd never ever do that. Absolutely not. Um, anyway, Dreyfus was clearly in. A, he, he was uh, clearly innocent, so we're not going to do it on the Dreyfus case. Um, so that's Dre- the Dreyfus affair. Quite a, I mean, that is a sad story. I think poor old Dreyfus. That's an incredibly sad story. I mean, well, it's actually it's a kind of it, a slight echo of um, uh, Torvi as a slave of kind of dynamics of race leading yeah. to you know someone being uprooted from the society in which they belong and sent away to, to suffer appallingly away from yeah. their family and everybody sort of cosmic injustice yeah cosmic injustice um which i guess is why it still has this kind of resonance that it does to, today yeah golly this is this series is getting very depressing i think we, we should we've got one more day haven't we we've got a great one tomorrow a really cheering one we've got one and we've got the appearance of samuel peeps at last i don't think we've had enough peeps in these uh yeah. These 12 days. No, we've got a very, very, very cheery one tomorrow, which is one of the great days in history. Well, today is one of the great days in history, Tom, because happy birthday. Yeah. And on that Thanks. note, thank you. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.